Don't rush out the doors. Stay around. Talk to somebody. Seek to be a blessing to somebody. Give somebody a smile. Shake their hand. Give them a hug. You never know how they might need that today from you. You never know how God uses a small gesture of kindness to really bring some sunshine into somebody's soul. To really bless somebody who's feeling down, who's had a difficult week. So you seek to be that blessing to somebody today. With a smile, with a hug, with a handshake, with with just a kind word. You can really do a whole lot with something very small to lift somebody up. So make that happen today. I hope you've been reading your Bible. If you have, let me say congratulations. Because you have now, if you've stayed the course so far, you've finished Genesis. And that ain't nothing. That is a 50 chapter big book to begin the Bible. That was a lot of B's in one sentence, wasn't it? And you finished it, so well done to you. Um, If you've read Genesis, you know that really that book is all about how God is is determined to keep His promises to Abraham and his descendants to bless the world through them. Despite many human failings, I mean, you've seen how sin is running rampant and how people have been rebellious against God, and yet God has continually sought out to have a relationship, a covenant relationship with His people. And you've also, at this point, finished Mark, the Gospel of Mark. And that's a great achievement. So well done if you've, if you've read through Mark. What you saw in Mark is how God ultimately fulfills the promises that He made to Abraham and his family in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what's so cool about reading the Old Testament and the New Testament simultaneously. Because you can see how the promises laid out all the way back in Genesis to Abraham's family have now been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And we've also been reading Galatians. We're about finished with Galatians. And again, if you're not reading, you shouldn't feel like you're a second class citizen of this Church, you also shouldn't feel lost. We're never going to present the Word on Sunday mornings in a way that that is just insider-friendly to those who are reading. But I do want to provide overviews of what you've been reading to give you encouragement to stay the course. And if you're about to finish Galatians, that means you've been reading about how Paul was telling this first century body of believers, hey, righteousness is now found not through obedience to the Old Testament law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can atone for your sins. So don't start supplementing your faith with all these rules and regulations from the old law. That has passed. The new has come. It's about Jesus now. Stay the, keep the faith in Jesus Christ. It is only through Him that you can receive righteousness, that you can be in a right place with God. That's Galatians. This morning, we're going to talk about Genesis once again. I've been preaching out of Genesis a lot. Maybe you've wondered, why hadn't you preached out of Mark? You know, we've been reading Mark too, or Mark as well. And um, on Sunday mornings, here's a couple reasons. On Sunday mornings in our Bible classes, you've been learning about Mark. And so I knew we were doing that study, most of us, on Sunday mornings. And I've preached a good bit about Mark through the years, but not as much on Genesis. Plus, when we read Matthew and Luke and John... We'll have plenty of opportunities in those books to preach from the life of Jesus. So I've wanted to preach out of Genesis, and we'll, we'll have another lesson from Genesis today. In Genesis chapter 4, we read about two brothers. Their names, Cain and Abel. 
the sons of Adam and Eve, the second generation of humans on the earth. And I talked about Cain and Abel a few Sunday nights ago. Most of you are familiar with the story of Cain and Abel, how Cain and Abel both brought an offering before the Lord, and how God regarded the offering of Abel, but not the offering of Cain. He did not receive it, did not accept it. And that made Cain extremely furious at his brother. And because God knows that his anger is about to get out of hand, that he's going to do something that violates the will of God, God comes to him and gives him a chance to cool down. And he says to Cain, words that all of us should remember, words that will be repeated throughout the sermon this morning. He says that Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin's crouching at the door, Cain. And if you are not careful, you will succumb to it. What I'm challenging you to do, Cain, is rule over it. It wants to take you down. Its desire is for you or against you. You must conquer it. How does Cain respond? Well, if you know the story, you know that Cain fails to do this in spectacular fashion. Because what happens in the very next verse is that Cain takes his brother Abel out into a field and murders him in cold blood. God says, Cain, you must rule over this temptation, and Cain does not do it. Now this is not our text this morning. This is just a setup for the sermon. Our text is what you heard at the beginning of our time today, Genesis chapter 39. And in our text, Genesis chapter 39, sin is crouching at somebody else's door. Sin is crouching at Joseph's door. And the question for us today as we read our text together is, will he succeed in ruling over it? Or will he he fail? Will he succumb to temptation just like Cain? And today, listen, I don't think I even need to tell you this because... If you're like me and you read those words that God spoke to Cain, those words ring true in our experience, do they not? Let me go ahead and spell it out for you. Sin, make no mistake, sin is crouching at your door. And even as we gather today, even as we speak, Satan is preparing the bait for you to set a trap for you in the upcoming week. Because that's what he does. That's what he's all about. He is looking to take you down. He wants to drag you down into hell with Him. He wants to ensnare you. And He knows your weakness. And He wants to exploit it. And He's setting a trap for you this week. And God's words ought to ring, ought to echo in your head the words that He spoke to Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Will you rule over it? This week. Let's talk about Joseph. Joseph, the 11th born son of Jacob. In Genesis 39, we find Joseph far, far away from his homeland. He's in Egypt, to the the south of the land of Canaan, to be precise. But, you know, that's not good. However, things have been looking up. He's living in the house of an officer of the Pharaoh named Potiphar. 
And Potiphar, this high-ranking official in the Egyptian government, has made Joseph the overseer of his house, which is quite an honor for this Hebrew foreigner, this man who had been sold into slavery to Potiphar. And everything in Potiphar's whole house had been left in Joseph's charge. And so life is, is rolling along fairly smoothly, as well as could be expected. But then, quite suddenly, Temptation strikes in Joseph's life. And isn't that how it is for us? It seems like life is rocking and rolling along smoothly and suddenly out of the blue, we are attacked by the evil one. I mean, it just kind of comes out of left field. We think life is going well, everything is, is going our way, and Satan comes on the attack. And we're blindsided by that. This is what happens in our text today. Let's see, in, in uh, Genesis 39, let's start at the second par- part of verse 6, where, where we read, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Sometimes it's difficult to be a good-looking person, isn't it? Would you agree? It's hard to be attractive. Do you agree with that? If you mentally agreed to that, then... I want to talk with you just a few moments after services about a little sin called pride. And uh, we're just going to meet back in room 214. That was a test. And if you thought, yeah, it is hard to be attractive, then you failed, okay? Just, just making sure everybody's awake out there. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was a good-looking guy. And he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife, his master's wife. Her eyes are drawn to him. And Potiphar's wife is not an upstanding lady. She is not a woman with integrity because she says quite brazenly and boldly to Joseph, lie with me. Come to bed with me. She doesn't beat around the bush. She spells out to Joseph exactly what she wants. And have you ever thought about how easy it would have been for Joseph to give in? I mean, I think it really would have been easy for them to carry on an illicit affair together. Potiphar had entrusted his entire household to Joseph. He had complete trust in this guy. And it's probably true that his job took him out of his home quite often. And so Joseph, having charge over all the servants of the house, could have sent them away on some job. He and Potiphar's wife could have had the house, the place to themselves. Would have been easy. Would have been simple. Nobody would have had to know. Well, nobody except God, of course. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And I want you to also consider what Joseph has been through thus far. Let's just do a quick rewind on Joseph's life so far. Back in Genesis chapter 37, he was a young man, a teenager, living the good life in the land of Canaan with his family. His father loved him, Scripture says, more than any of his brothers. He loved him so much that he gave him a special token of his affection, a coat of many colors. You know about this coat. Well, that coat made the rest of his brothers very angry with Joseph. They hated him. And on top of that, Joseph had a few dreams about how someday his brothers would bow down to him, that he would rule over them. And that only increased their hatred and their jealousy. Well, one day, Joseph's brothers got so angry, they decided to kill him, much like Cain decided to kill Abel. 
But Reuben, the oldest, steps in and says, no, don't kill him, just throw him in this pit. And Reuben, thinking to himself, I'll come back later and rescue Joseph because our dad would be devastated if something happened to Joseph. Well, while Reuben's away, the rest of the brothers decide, let's just sell him into slavery. Let's sell him to some of these traders who are passing by, heading down to the land of Egypt, which they do. They sell him for a few pieces of silver. And Joseph joins this caravan and heads down to Egypt. And the brothers, in order to cover up their their crime, they rip off Joseph's coat, they dip it in goat's blood, and they show it to their father, and they let him draw the conclusion that Joseph has been ripped to shreds by a wild animal, that he's no more. And so Joseph has been plucked out of of the land where he grew up from all the people that he knew, He's far away from home. It would have been easy for him to think, I've been abandoned by God. God has turned his back on me. I will never see my family again. Who cares if I resist this woman's advances? What do I have to lose? I might as well have a little fun for the remainder of my days. It would have been so easy for Joseph to say yes. It would have been all too simple for him to give in. But look what happens in verse 8. Look at his response to this woman, to Potiphar's wife. The scripture just very simply states, but he refused. He said no. And what follows is basically a guide for resisting temptation. And this is when your notebook and your pen is going to come in in handy here because I want us to look at how Joseph responds. When sin was crouching at Joseph's door, when it pounced at him, how did he respond? There's some good stuff in here. Number one, check this out. In verses 8 and 9, Joseph considers the consequences. He counts the cost. He takes a moment and he steps back and he considers what this act might do to his life. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, listen. My master has no concern about anything in the house and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am. He's not kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. Do you hear what Joseph is doing here? He is thinking about how this act might affect his life, his livelihood, his reputation. And listen, I know this is not a popular thing to do in our culture, to step back and to rationally consider the consequences of our decisions. Our culture is all about, hey, if it feels good, just do it and worry about the consequences down the road. Just go for it in the here and now. But Joseph instructs us to stop and take a breath and step back and think about what we're doing and think about the damage that might occur if we do this or that. How many sinful decisions could we avoid if we paused and counted the cost first? I bet we have some in the house today who would say, I wish, I wish, I wish I could go back and undo that. I wish I had taken just a moment to consider what I was doing. I wish I could go back And step away from that situation and count the cost and think about the consequences and consider the damage that that decision has done to my life and my reputation and my family. I wish I had done what Joseph does right here. 
May this be instructive to us going forward. When we're faced with temptation, when sin has crouched at our door and pounced, let's step back and consider those consequences. Secondly, look, look at this at the last part of verse 9. He closes his mini speech to Potiphar's wife by saying, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? What Joseph does is he articulates the true nature of sin. Joseph gives a full-throated definition to sin. In Joseph's mind, it's not just to screw up when you sin. It's not just a mess up. It's not just a mistake. It is wickedness. It is evil. And I know sin has fallen out of our culture's vocabulary, but we should take a lesson from Joseph's playbook and remind ourselves what sin actually is. A lot of times when we're tempted, we like to you know, make excuses and say, well, now's not a good time for me, or I shouldn't do this right now, maybe later. And we kind of hem and haw around because we don't want to seem like we're goody goods. We don't want to seem like we're prudes. Joseph knows the destructive nature of sin. He understands what sin is and he comes out and says it. This would be wicked. This would be evil. And though sin hurts others, sin hurts our friends and our family and our communities, but ultimately Joseph knows that the main problem with sin is that it offends God. It violates the will of God. It breaks our relationship with God. That is the true destructive nature of sin. So Joseph is able to resist here because he understands what sin is at its core. It is evil, it is wickedness. And it brings destruction into our relationship with God. He gives a full-throated definition of sin. Number three, look at this in verse 10. This was not just a one-time temptation. This lady stayed on Joseph day in and day out. The scripture says she spoke to Joseph day after day. She's persistent. And isn't that just like the temptations that we face? I don't just face temptations for this or that one time. Satan knows where I'm weak, and so he attacks me in those places over and over and over again. We Christians struggle with the same sins and temptations throughout our lives. Satan doesn't take a day off. Satan is persistent with us. Because that's his line of work. That's what he lives to do. He lives to destroy us. And so he's going to stay after us day after day. That's what happens with Joseph here. This lady is relentless. She doesn't let up. But watch what Joseph does. He would not listen to her. He does not even entertain the option. This is key. Because some of us will entertain the option. We will imagine what it would be like we will think about what that experience might feel like. And so, you know, we're entertaining the idea in our head. Not Joseph. He presses the mute button on this lady, on temptation. He doesn't give ear to her. He instead, and what we should do, is give ear instead to, to not which 
will lead us to destruction, but that which will lead us to life. Give ear instead to what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, as Paul says in Philippians 4, verse 8. He says, think about things like that. Don't think about things that will lead to destruction. Think about things that will lead to life. So Joseph carefully selects what is being what is coming in, his input. He's selective about this. He tunes her out. He does not give ear to her anymore. He doesn't even entertain the option. He doesn't begin to think about what it would be like to be with her. He just cuts her off. And then, watch this, verse 11. She really becomes aggressive. One day when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house was there in the house. Uh Uh-oh. She caught him by his garment, grabbed him, saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. He hightailed it out of there. He runs. When all else fails, you got to run. Sometimes all you can do is get out. If you find yourself in a situation where the heat is being turned up, where temptation feels overwhelming, you have to flee. You just need to remove yourself from that situation. That's what Joseph here does. He does he's, he's out of options. He doesn't have any more tactics. She's on the attack. He's got to go. So he runs out of the house. Now what I find is amazing is that the New Testament has an even more powerful truth for us. As Christians, James says, resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you because he's scared of those who are on the side of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's scared of those who have the Lord Jesus Christ living within them because he knows the one living within you is more powerful than him. And so if you stand up to him, if you resist him, he will flee from you. You won't even have to run away from him. He'll run away from you. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here in the sermon. Right now we need to see that Joseph, when he's in the crucible here, when he knows that that sin is close at hand, he hightails it out of there. He runs. Sometimes that's the only option for us as well. And so Joseph's example here, I think, provides excellent counsel when sin pounces, when temptation is close at hand. However... There's something we've got, to, we've got to say here. We've got to mention this. Joseph is only able to resist temptation because of what Genesis chapter 39 verse 2 says. You know what Genesis chapter 39 verse 2 says? It said the Lord was with Joseph. His presence was abiding with Joseph. And again... In the aftermath of this debacle, because when Joseph flees from Potiphar's wife, leaving in her hands his garment, she, being the dishonest woman she is, tells her husband, he came on to me. He attacked me. And here I'm left with his coat that he was taking off. And Potiphar, of course, believes his wife and throws Joseph in prison. But even in prison, we read in 39.21, the Lord was with Joseph. Without the Lord's presence, all that we have outlined so far 
They're just self-help tips that are destined to fail every time in the face of temptation. You cannot go toe-to-toe with the evil one with your own strength and your own resources and hope to prevail. You cannot go toe-to-toe with the father of all lies, with the great enemy of the world, and expect to win on your own. You will be conquered. You will be ruled every time. You will fail every time. You will give in to temptation every time if you're relying on your own strength. But if you have the Lord Jesus Christ with you, if His Spirit is abiding within you, if you're relying on God's presence, then you can resist. You can conquer. You can rule over. Jesus, uh, Joseph, excuse me, is able to consider the consequences of these actions because of the Lord's presence. Joseph is able to articulate the true nature of sin. He understands what sin is because of God's presence. Joseph is able to tune out the temptation, to not give ear to it, to not listen to this lady anymore because of God's presence. And Joseph has the strength to hightail it out of the room, to run away from her because of God's presence. It is the presence of God that gave Joseph the strength to resist temptation. And if you're not relying on the presence of God, you will fail time and time and time again. It's because the Lord was with Joseph that he's able to resist. Now, the Genesis story climaxes with the story of Joseph, as you saw. Genesis spends a big chunk of its chapters telling the story of Joseph, of Joseph from chapter 37 all the way to 50. All we read about almost is Joseph. We might begin to think that the whole book is about him, except at the end of Genesis... Joseph dies. And Joseph dies with a sense of anticipation about the promises of God that had yet to be fulfilled. If you listen to some of his last words in verses 24 through 26, he tells his brothers with whom he had reconciled by the end of his life, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and he will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham my great-grandfather to Isaac, my grandfather to Jacob or Israel, my father. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So we end the book of Genesis with the image of Joseph's bones in his coffin. He's died with the expectation that God is not yet done with his work. God is going to revisit you. God is going to bring you up out of this land. Like everybody else in the Old Testament, Joseph is waiting on something. He's actually waiting on someone. Someone who would come along in due time. Someone who, interestingly, would be similar in many ways to Joseph. Someone who would, be, who would also be the object of his father's special love. Somebody about whom his father would say, Behold, this is my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Somebody who would be destined for greatness even from childhood, whose birth would be announced by a host of angels, who at twelve would travel to the temple in Jerusalem and astound the teachers of the law with his knowledge and wisdom. 
Someone who would also resist temptation. Someone who would be out in the wilderness for 40 days without food and water and go toe-to-toe with the devil and conquer over him. Resist him. Resist temptation. Someone who would also be mistreated by his own family, his own people. Someone who would be sold for pieces of silver. Someone who would also be stripped of his robe and humiliated and thrown into the ground. Someone who would be used by God in an infinitely greater way to bring about salvation for many. You know the someone I'm talking about. And unlike Joseph, this someone would bring fulfillment to all the promises of God that He made to Joseph, to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham. And because this someone, Jesus Christ, went to the cross, sin no longer has power over believers, over you. Because of Jesus, we can resist. Because He conquered sin, we can conquer sin. Because He's with us, we can stand up to the devil. Because He lives within us, we can resist temptation. We have the power within us. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If you're struggling with sin today and you need to come and confess and repent and say, listen, I've been giving in for far too long. It's time that I resisted the devil and I know I can only do it by the power of God living in me. But I need my church family to pray for me. If you're not a baptized believer, but today is your day, and you want to come and confess that Jesus is Lord, you want to repent, you want to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, it would be wonderful. It would be a glorious sight to witness you coming up out of those waters, having your sins washed away, a new creation. If you have any spiritual needs this morning that you need to make known, why don't you, why don't you come and do that as we stand and sing?